Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Exhibitions on view now are Superheroes in Gotham. If you've seen the Batmobile, that is part of the exhibition. And uh, the in Silicon City, about the invention of computers in New York. Both terrific exhibitions. If you haven't seen them, please return. We have our new brochures out. If when you walk out the doors after the program, there's a display with the brochures and our film flyers. Please uh, pick one up if you don't have one. I always like to ask at this time how many members are with us this morning. So almost everyone's a member today. So we thank you. We want to thank you so much for being with us time and time again for all your support. It helps us produce all these wonderful programs. And for that one person who's not a member in the audience today, <laughs> we invite you to join the family. Of course, you're welcome. Members are not all welcome. So thank you all for being with us. And uh, Jim, you can take the brochure. Thank you. And you know, just um, I want to thank Jim and all the volunteers, Jim Pasinich, for all the great work they do too. So um, today's program, Reconstruction at 150, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for all his wonderful support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. Let's give Mr. Schwartz a big hand. Now, we, we had a few of our board members signed up. They maybe aren't here yet, and maybe they, I don't see them, but Pam Schaffler and Lon Jacobs were signed up if you're here, or even if you're not. We want to thank them and all our wonderful Chairman's Council members who are with us as well this morning for all their great work and support. So the program this morning will last an hour and a half, and it will include a question and answer session. There will be no formal book signing, but uh, the author's books are in our museum store for sale. And this morning, we are delighted to welcome David Blight, Eric Foner, Edna Green Medford and Harold Hulzer back to the New York Historical Society. Uh, just curious also how many people were at the film Glory last night with our speakers. Just It's always just a handful. So um, one of our audience members told me that Glory will be on TCM soon. Keep your eye out for it as well. Um, now, David Blight is the class of 1954 professor of American history at Yale University. <clears throat> he is the director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale, <clears throat> where he also teaches the class The Civil War and Reconstruction Era. He is also a valued trustee here at New York Historical Society. He is the author of many books on the Civil War and Reconstruction eras, including Race and Reunion, the Civil War in American Memory, which was winner of eight book awards, notably the Bancroft and the Abraham Lincoln Prize. Edna Green Medford, professor and chair of the Department of History at Howard University, specializes in 19th century African-American history, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. 
She's the member, she is a member of the Lincoln Group of the District of Columbia and received the group's Distinguished Lincoln Award in May 2012. She has served as the Director of History of New York's African Burial Ground Project and on several Lincoln-related advisory boards, um, more than several. She's on a whole list, so I couldn't fit them all in here. Uh, Dr. Medford is the author and editor of several books, including her latest, Lincoln and Emancipation. And I might just mention, um, years ago, we had a wonderful little debate here. And uh, Edna really stands her ground. I just, she's really something else. Eric Foner is DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University. He is the president of three major professional organizations, the Organization of American Historians, the American Historical Association, and the Society of American Historians. They all really sound alike. He has written many books on the history of American race relations, including the Bancroft Prize-winning Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution, and The Fiery Trial, which was awarded Pulitzer, Bancroft, and Lincoln Prizes, and most recently, Gateway to Freedom, which is to be awarded the New York Historical Society's 2016 American History Book Prize. Harold Holzer. I just have to say a couple of extra words about Harold. Um, he has been with us for a year. He is a great um, partner in, in coming up with wonderful programs he sent me the list of all we've done recently as we are planning the next season. And um, Harold, thank you so much for all these great programs that we put together with you. So let's give Harold an extra hand here. He is the moderator this morning and is the Jonathan F. Fanton Director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College. Harold is the author of many books, including um, Lincoln and the Power of the Press, The War for Public Opinion, which was the winner of the Gilder Lamb and Lincoln Prize and upcoming recipient of the 2016 Goldsmith Book Prize at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. In 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President George Bush. Harold served three years as a Roger Hertog Fellow here at New York Historical Society, and he was also an advisor or the advisor to Steven Spielberg on the film Lincoln. Before we begin, we always ask everyone to please turn off their cell phones and any electronic devices. Please note flash photography is not permitted. We have a house photographer today to cover that. And now please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. Good morning. What a wonderful crowd. Is everybody warm? <laughs> yes, good. We hope to have some heated dialogue today to keep the flames going. Um, I want to add my welcome to my friends, um, Edna Medford, Eric Foner, and David Blight. It's always wonderful to, to have them on a panel or just to see them, and three more brilliant and accomplished experts in this field. You cannot assemble anywhere. Um, only Dale Gregory could get us all together at the New York <laughs> Historical Society. We should really give her a round of applause for all that she does. So, 
So let me start by observing that we are certainly living through uh, uh, an era in which emotions are being repeatedly laid bare about the history of race relations in America, not to mention race relations in America now. Uh, and we are being reminded constantly about the symbols of that era that still abound in our own culture and in many cases rub the emotions even more raw. And I think we all know the most recent examples. Let me offer one that may have slipped under the radar. Three weeks ago, Hillary Clinton was appearing in Iowa, defending her choice of Abraham Lincoln as the greatest president ever. She was asked, who was the greatest president? She didn't want to pick her husband. She didn't want to pick President Obama. Thought it was safe to pick Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> who can object? Always a good idea. It's a good idea. She was doing a very good job when she decided to add one extra comment. Quote, Lincoln was willing to reconcile and forgive. And I don't know what our country might have been like had he not been murdered, but I bet that it might have been a little less rancorous, a little more forgiving and tolerant. But instead, we had Reconstruction. We had the reinstitution of segregation and Jim Crow. We had people in the South feeling totally discouraged and defiant. So I really do believe Lincoln could have very well put us on a different path. Within hours, <laughs> Ta-Nehisi Coates blogged, Clinton, whether she knows it or not, is retelling a racist, though popular, version of American history, which held sway in this country until relatively recently. That Reconstruction was a mistake brought about by vengeful Northern radicals, resulting in a savage and corrupt government, which in turn left former Confederates, as Clinton puts it, discouraged and defiant. It really isn't too much to say, if you're going to govern a country, you should know its history. Well, a New York Magazine blog said much the same thing in a piece entitled, Did Hillary Clinton Channel Dixie's View on Reconstruction? It got pretty rough. So I will, just for purposes of uh, telling the whole story, I did my own um, piece for uh, HuffPost and the History News Network that said, come on, everybody. We know what she was trying to say, that Lincoln was a great leader and might have negotiated the waters of that period a whole lot better than Andrew Johnson. Um, I don't hear any support, so I'll just move <laughs> right on. <laughs> no, I'm not asking for support. No, we'll go on. No, we'll, we'll have question. We'll have a question, period. No one can hear you, so... Anyway, you see, Reconstruction still stirs emotions, as it should. So what? let's start with Lincoln. Because Lincoln was the president who put together a Reconstruction plan while the war was still going on. What did he plan? And let's, let's start with Edna on that and go down the line. Uh, December 1863, uh, proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction. Uh, Lincoln was headed uh, toward the end of the war. You know, he wanted to think about what should occur once the war was over. And his plan was very conciliatory to the South, absolutely. 
by his plan, what's what we think of as the 10% plan, uh, very few Southerners, very few Confederates would have had to give up their uh, allegiance to the Confederacy and uh, actually take an oath uh, of loyalty to the, to the Union. And so we're talking 10% of those persons who could vote, you know, in 1860, declaring loyalty, and the rest of these folk could just simply go on and consider themselves Confederates. So it was very conciliatory. No real, uh, no real plan about what was going to happen to these uh, almost 4 million African Americans who would be freed uh, from slavery. Although at the same time that he's issuing this official proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction, he is writing to the governor of, um, of Louisiana. Louisiana is about to go under uh, the reconstruction process. So he's writing to him. He's writing to uh, General Banks as well, talking about the possibility of voting rights for African-Americans. And in other ways too, he's suggesting that um, you know, African-Americans need to be educated, uh, that there are certain rights that they should have, but he's not talking about citizenship at this time. And for that, he has been criticized uh, throughout history. Eric, you literally wrote the book on Reconstruction. Where was Lincoln? Could the plans have worked had he lived? Well, you know, I would, first of all, um, I was asked by many media types to comment on Hillary Clinton's um, statement, and I declined because, uh, you know, I, I, Hillary was just making a kind of off-the-cuff remark and not a considered analysis of history, you right. know, obviously. Um, although I can see why people may have taken it maybe not the way she intended. Whenever you, because Here's my point. Talking about forgiving in the same breath as Reconstruction or we could have been forgiving, does bring back the, the notion that Reconstruction was fundamentally a punishment to the South, that it was, you know, um, and that reverberates back even to the present day, the notion that somehow expanding the rights of black people is a punishment to white people. And that is one of the major lessons of the older view of Reconstruction, which is no longer, you know, held by historians. So, you know, I, but anyway, putting Hillary Clinton aside, I think the thing to bear in mind about Lincoln is he did not have a single plan of Reconstruction. Different forms of Reconstruction were happening under Lincoln's administration. What was happening in Louisiana was not the same thing as what was happening in Tennessee under Andrew Johnson when he was governor, uh, their military governor, much more uh, punishment, so to speak, of rebels. But the thing is that Lincoln, I, I think the mistake is to think that what happened in the war is a blueprint for what Lincoln might have done after the war. Because Reconstruction during the war was, number one, a way of helping to win the war. Lincoln understood that to detach a state from the Confederacy would be a giant victory, more important than a military victory in some ways. Therefore, the in inducements he offered to white um, Confederates to abandon the Confederacy, as in Louisiana, and join up with the Union again were very, very strong inducements. Um, but that does not mean what he would have done after the war. And as you know, Harold, in the last cabinet meeting, or the day before he was assassinated, Lincoln basically said, according to the diaries, well, now we've got to start really figuring out what we're going to do about Reconstruction. Then the next day he's assassinated. Um, so it's not as if 
although the old view sort of gives you this impression that Lincoln had a clear plan and was ready to implement it when he died. Um, and then the next step after that, many people say, well, Andrew Johnson tried to implement him and the vindictive radical Republicans thwarted him. No, we don't know what Lincoln would have done. We know he was moving in a direction of greater rights for African-Americans. Um, as you know, in his last speech, he talked about publicly for the first time the right to vote for certain uh, black men in the South. So, um, you know, Lincoln was a great politician, a great leader, certainly far greater than the man who succeeded him in the White House. Um, but, um, you know, that's about all I think we can say with confidence about what Lincoln might have done as, as president in Reconstruction. Well, what about the congressional <clears throat> pushback that was certainly there from Wade and Davis on? David, you want to weigh well, in on what Congress the was? The opposition laid down the gauntlet uh, shortly after the proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction. In 64, the Wade Davis bill, as it's called, uh, laid down a blueprint of a kind, which would be much stiffer. It would have required uh, something we've come to call the ironclad oath. If you aided and abetted the Confederacy, you could not participate in new governments formed in the South, which made it a little difficult to create an Alabama government with people who hadn't <laughs> aided and abetted, although that was part of a political plan uh, and never entirely enforced. Uh, they, had very, they had very real differences on who would get amnesty and who wouldn't and how long the process would take. What, what that shows us, the conflict, this is within the Republican Party, is, is as Eric is saying, I mean, Lincoln's view of Reconstruction during the war, which is the only view we have, because he's gone by the end of the war, was restoration, really, as, as much as possible, restore a, a Confederate state here, restore a Confederate state there. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary political move to try to restore as many Confederate states back into the Union before the war ends. The radical Republicans, however, are, you know, their, their vision is to set up a longer uh, process uh, of Reconstruction that in their view would be run by Congress. Now we see later that this becomes partly the great divide Congressional Reconstruction versus Presidential Reconstruction. Of course, in Lincoln's case, he wanted Reconstruction to be presidential as quick as possible and as lenient, if you want to use that term, as possible. But back to the, I mean, I don't want to bring back Hillary Clinton here, but that issue of where we draw on the old views of Reconstruction and where we don't, it, 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 it's always interesting how the healer Lincoln is always part of that story. Mm -hmm. We love the healer in Lincoln. We, and we often, and when, when this flap happened, actually, a couple of emails with Eric, he was a little more poignant in his view on this. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, that he, he can vote. Only to my friends. No, I know, I know. I was, but I, I don't talk to the press, but you should see what he said on email. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, but we often, we love that healer Lincoln and we forget the Lincoln who bludgeoned the Confederacy out of yeah. existence. <laughs> yeah. So, so <clears throat> Lincoln is gone, perhaps because in many, many people believe because John Wilkes Booth heard that final speech, a speech on Reconstruction, in which Lincoln said that the very intelligent African-Americans and those who have served in the army, sounds like 
denying voting rights, but in fact represented the first time an American president had publicly called for some kind of voting rights for black men. Men, it was always men, of course. Booth is in the audience and turns to one of his um, confederates, small c, and capital C, and says that's the last speech he'll ever make. And three days later, he personally makes good on his promise to silence him. So just want, I think it's important to note that while we're talking about divisions within the progressive party in the United States, the Republican Party, there is a, a Democratic Party that has quite different views, which we'll get to. Um, so the struggle is, is deeper and wider at the same time. So now we have Andrew Johnson, pro-union, racist, successor to Abraham Lincoln, a Democrat all of his career. Um, he is recruited into the new National Union Party because he represents a loyal Southern state to balance the ticket. What is the concept, or what are the concepts of Reconstruction that are now floated about with a weakened presidency and perhaps an emboldened Congress? What is the definition we should begin carrying as we go forward in our discussion? Why don't we start with David and come this way now? <laughs> okay. Well, in, in broad terms, in 65, 66, and then 67, when this constitutional tug of war um, uh, and constitutional crisis develops between the president and Congress, they're really struggling over questions like who will rule in the South and whatever, however you recreate new states, new governments, new regimes, who will rule? Secondly, who will rule in Washington? Congress or the president? And they're dealing with totally unprecedented issues. There's nowhere in the Constitution you can look up, you know, section whatever, where it says, how do you restore the Union after an all-out civil war? It, they just didn't plan for that. And the third part is, how will the freed people be defined? What rights will four million former slaves have? Under what circumstances and under what kind of enforcement? These are totally unprecedented problems and questions that American statesmen had never faced before. It's a constitutional challenge, a political challenge, a moral challenge. Uh, it's remarkable how prepared, in a sense, the radical Republicans were with a plan. So this is something Eric uh, wrote so beautifully about in his book, that these were people who came to this with a plan. It's not going to all work, but they had a plan. So it's these kinds of huge questions. But at the heart of it was this constitutional struggle. Would this be controlled by Congress over against a very weakened president or by a president who really isn't a Republican, but doesn't really have a party, so to speak, and has a leadership style, that's to say, did not serve him well. And who is, without a question, a dyed-in-the-wool white supremacist, a dyed-in-the-wool states rightist, you know, his famous slogan was, uh, the union as it was, the Constitution as it is. If you think that through quickly, that means <laughs> 13th Amendment, if we have to accept it, no 14th, no 15th, just restore the union as quick as possible. End slavery, because it's already ended, but no civil or political rights for blacks. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I totally agree with what David said. I mean, Andrew Stole John... Stole it off from your book. <laughs> <laughs> but I frequently change my mind well, after I, I wrote it. Well, let me know, will you? Yeah, right. 
Andrew Johnson has the, uh, certainly is a, a contender for the title of the worst president in American history. Throw it up. Uh, there are other contenders, but uh, we don't have to <laughs> go into that right now. But, um, uh, you know, I, I think, just to emphasize, not to repeat what David said, but to emphasize, that, you know, the critical question of Reconstruction is the end, you know, what is going to follow slavery? This is, you know, the institution of slavery was a gigantic presence in American life up to the Civil War. It was by far the largest concentration of property. It was the producer of the biggest export of the United States, cotton. It was the foundation of a powerful ruling class in the South, which was also very powerful in Washington. Slavery was an economic system, a political system, a racial system. It's now destroyed. What is going to replace slavery? What kind of labor is going to replace slave labor? What, kind, what political structure is going to replace the political structure? And most importantly, what rights are these 4 million African-American men, women, and children going to have? Now, the Lincoln administration, even before the Emancipation Proclamation, the Attorney General Bates had issued a ruling saying, free black people are citizens of the United States in a sense, rejecting the Dred Scott, which came a few years, you know, well, what rights do citizens supposed to have? You know, and actually, before the Civil War, there was no clear definition of the people use the term citizen, but the actual rights of citizens were determined by the states and varied very dramatically from state to state. But now, you know, the, the radical impulse is an impulse toward equality, toward nationalism, toward defining, and the, you know, the war had created a giant national consciousness which hadn't really existed before. And now the question is, okay, we're gonna define who's a citizen and we're gonna, def we're gonna create a society of equality among citizens. Not equality and everybody having exactly the same amount of money, but equality of rights, equality of rights before the law, equality of opportunity, political equality, at least for the men. Nobody's giving women the right to vote at this time. And Andrew Johnson was completely unwilling to accept those principles. Yes, slavery's gone. There's no way it's going to be restored. Everyone understands that. But what follows slavery is the crux of the giant battle that takes place between Johnson and Congress in 1865, 66, 67. And um, if I may add, what follows slavery would be black coats. And so every Southern state passes these laws trying to impose what looks like quasi-slavery on the newly emancipated. And these were governments and, Johnson had created. Absolutely, absolutely. And so you have instances of African-Americans uh, not being able to purchase land, and actually some were, would have been able to do that because you had black soldiers who might have had a little bit of money. You had people trying to pull their resources, their limited resources, but they weren't allowed to either purchase the land or rent the land. You had uh, black people being denied the right to serve on juries. Uh, certainly can't vote. Uh, the most heinous uh, problem during this period is with the apprenticeship laws. I know that a lot of us think that the vagrancy laws were the most important because uh, black men were rounded up and jailed if they didn't have um, visible means uh, of support, if they didn't have employment. But the real tragedy, I think, of this early period, this period starting right after the war into 1866 and 67, was the apprenticeship of African-American children children being returned to former owners and forced to labor for them 
because the parents were deemed indigent and could not take care of them. So imagine people who had fought for their freedom now losing their children to the very people who had held them enslaved. And so, and then of course, you've got um, Southerners who are returned, ex-Confederates who are returned to Congress after having been responsible for a four-year war. And so what really brings this new form of reconstruction and the whole congressional reconstruction is the, the outrage that this war has been fought. And although the Union supposedly won, you have uh, Southerners, former Confederates, actually being able to re regain power, not just in their states, but at the federal level as well. And then you talked about the Black Codes, but talk also, if you would, about the Freedmen's Bureau, what it was designed to do, and how, sadly, tragically, it, it produced nothing more than resistance in a way, an irrational resistance. Absolutely. Um, the Freedmen's Bureau was established uh, by the federal government in 1865, and it was meant not just to help African Americans make that transition from slavery to freedom, but to help whites who had been displaced by the war as well. And I think we sometimes forget that. We think the Bureau was just about helping black people. Actually, it's helping people uh, in general who need that assistance after the war. But what it is supposed to do for African-Americans is to make sure that they're not starving to death, uh, that there are labor contracts that are introduced. Uh, that would have been a grand idea if the Freedmen's Bureau agents had been a little bit more uh, sympathetic to the needs and the, the uh, ideas of the, the newly freed people. Too frequently what happened is those contracts are being um, enforced to the benefit of the former slaveholders and other uh, ex-Confederates who are trying to reestablish uh, a form of slavery, a quasi-slavery uh, in the South, one of the most important things it does do is to help establish schools. Uh, because remember, enslaved people are not able to learn to read and write because they're denied uh, that right to do so. And so there is this real need to educate them. How are they going to be able to sign a contract if they don't know how to read and write? And so the Bureau is very important in that regard but there is so much resistance in the South to the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, black schools are burned down. Black churches are burned. Uh, another, uh, the church is so important to, uh, uh, as, as a black institution. And so Southern whites recognize that. And so they try to destroy those churches as well. So there's a real pushback there. There are Freedmen's Bureau courts. But what happens is, in many instances, the judges who are brought to these courts are not the, the, uh, the ones that African-Americans would have liked to have seen there. Sometimes African-Americans are suggesting that they be allowed to serve on these courts. And in, in many instances, they are not. So the Bureau does not accomplish what it could have accomplished had people stopped meddling uh, with, with their program. And Johnson vetoed every bill to, to recreate it, mm -hmm. had the bill written. The, the um, as if you the the title of the Freedmen's Bureau was actually the Bureau of Freedmen Refugees. These are the white people displaced by the war, and abandoned lands. And the original measure that set up the Freedmen's Bureau 
anticipated in a very vague sort of way that the Bureau would not distribute free of charge, but settle African-American families on land which had fallen into the hands of the government during the abandoned land when Southerners had fled, you know. Um, one of the early things that Andrew Johnson did, remember Congress is not in session, which when Andrew Johnson becomes president in April all the way down to December. So he's got a free hand to deal with this through most of 1865. And uh, one of the things he does is order all this land restored to the former owners. And that from the very beginning undercuts the African-Americans wanted, you know, the famous phrase, 40 acres and a mule, uh, i.e. they wanted some economic wherewithal to underpin the freedom they had required. And the Freedmen's Bureau was supposed to help them in that. Now, there were many, as you said, agents who weren't really interested in that, but there were some who were, like Rufus Saxton, the head of the Bureau down in South Carolina, was a radical and wanted to get blacks onto land. Some of them had already been settled on land by General Sherman, uh, but that land's all returned to the former. Yeah, I owner. wanted to get into that. So Sherman, who is no friend of black people, right. gives in January freed people land right. in the Carolinas. Okay, yeah. And they and the land is settled. Maybe planting is done. Well, in by the, the summer there are and, thousands of black families on this Sherman. And presumably land. beginning to farm. And it's taken away. There's a At just the summarily end of the, they are allowed away. to stay through the growing season and then in December the, the same army that had settled them on land now has to evict them if they will not sign these labor contracts, which uh, Edna was mentioning, you know, to work for their former owners who are now being restored. So this generated a tremendous sense of betrayal, as you know, among the freed slaves in the coastal areas of South Carolina and Georgia. But even in many other places, in Virginia, uh, in Louisiana, there was land on which African-Americans had been settled, not by Sherman, but by the Bureau. But again, that is taken away under Johnson's orders. So that is one of the things Johnson does that doesn't get enough attention that really undercuts the idea of a economically radical reconstruction right at the beginning. Why? I mean, I'm always struck by the the silence of the Supreme Court during the Lincoln administration. But why is the court never involved in any of these, uh, any appeals to reverse, or if it is, tell us what Well, they first do. of all, the Supreme Court had been completely discredited in the eyes of Northerners by the Dred Scott right. decision. Nobody in the secession crisis, nobody said, oh, let's go to the Supreme Court and see what they, nobody cared what the Supreme Court said. And even though but it's now, an extraordinary just, thing that yeah, that was the attitude. Justice Tawney was gone by now, and Chase was now the chief justice. But at the, eventually, Southerners do bring the Reconstruction Acts to the Supreme Court, and they say, hey, we're not touching this with a 10-foot pole. You know, The Supreme Court had tried to settle the slavery issue, quote-unquote, with Dred Scott, yeah. and it was a total abysmal failure. They said, we are not getting involved in so, this. This is a political question, not a legal question. Reputationally, the court can't, Handle it. They're not an equal branch of government. Nobody in sense cared at this point. what the Supreme Court said at this point. They had totally destroyed their own reputation. Also, in the aftermath of an all-out civil war, yeah. where the courts had played absolutely no role. No role. I mean, and 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 the military obviously mm -hmm. had come to the fore. You had you had three institutions now: the presidency, the Congress, and the military. It's, oh yeah, there's a Supreme Court, but who even knows who's on it? Right. They're going to revive in significance toward the end of Reconstruction and have a major role in eroding, if not mm -hmm. ruining, uh, the achievements of Reconstruction. 
And it will be the court appointed entirely by Lincoln and Grant. Mm -hmm. But that's another yeah. story. So, David, nobody has written more brilliantly about race, reunion, and memory than you. That's my editorial judgment of the You're morning. You're setting me up for something here. Well, <laughs> just talk for a minute about what are euphemistically known as carpetbaggers, scan scalawags, mm -hmm. and how these romanticized, mythical, absurd uh, images were created and sustained. I mean, we know it's gone yeah. with the wind, but before that. Right. Well, these people had a reputation problem, too, Yeah. <laughs> over time. Uh, carpetbaggers, as we know, are those who are northerners who go south, uh, mostly white, but some of them black, uh, who go for various reasons, some, sometimes political reasons, and they do get elected in some places, sometimes for economic reasons. The south was the new west for a while, in, mm. in a real sense. The South was a vacuum in some ways. It was a, it was a go south young man in a sense. Um, but the reputation of the carpetbaggers as it was ultimately spun, if you like, in the Lost Cause tradition, well, even before the Lost Cause, right in the middle of Reconstruction, was that hordes of Yankees had come south to exploit the situation of the South, economically, politically, racially. Uh, the truth is, uh, carpetbaggers did get elected in some southern states, but never really controlled any southern state legislature. Uh, they certainly didn't take over the southern economy by any means. The Scalloway phenomenon means a white southerner, uh, often ex-Confederate, uh, who joins the Republican Party. There's some famous cases, some fascinating cases from various states. Um, the, and they, too, were never a, a huge or strong group of people, but they became perfect scapegoats for those looking for uh, targets uh, to blame for the chaos and the violence and, the, and the, uh, you know, the economic depression that hits the country and the South in the 1870s. Um, and that term, you know, carpetbagger, has stuck and been applied all throughout our history. Um, it's an overblown uh, cultural creation, in a way, an image created in, in largely in the popular culture. I had actually a dissertation student do a brilliant dissertation on this. The ways in which the image of the carpetbagger and cartooning and illustrations and short stories and all kinds, it becomes this, this deeply mythic image of Reconstruction. And of course, if anyone remembers Gone with the Wind, the famous scenes of the exploitive, always overweight uh, Yankee carpetbagger who's come south to just take everything. Don't leave something laying around because there's a Yankee who will steal it. Um, is, is part of that old reputation uh, about Reconstruction. They never really controlled Reconstruction. Uh, and in some states, they were a genuine aid to the revival of the mm -hmm. economy. Uh, but... Anyway, that's that's a quick the, riff. The, the, the thing, just reputation. one little thing to add to that is the, and as David is quite right, of course, that the image arises during Reconstruction. It's created by the Democrats who oppose Reconstruction. Uh, it then becomes written into the history and the culture in the ways you described. Um, but one of the reasons for the tremendous emphasis on these is that 
the other side of that is the de-emphasis on the actual role of black people in Reconstruction, that part of the Reconstruction myth is that African-Americans were just kind of inert. They were manipulated by others. The come down, that African-Americans are just not capable of creating their own political aims, their own political organizations, uh, using the vote intelligently, et cetera. And so if things went wrong, in an odd sort of way, it wasn't really blacks' fault. They were like children. It was these carpetbaggers who manipulated them. Uh, and um, they're the ones to blame for what people thought went wrong in Reconstruction. So um, car the white carpetbaggers, the white scalawags are blamed, and the vast num the majority of, Afri of, of Republicans in the South who are black people uh, are kind of seen as just manipulated by others. And this is something which in older days was seen, you know, as a way of black people were interpreted at many points in history, that they were the victims of others, not people with actors of their own on the stage by the of way, history. By the way, the Scalawags were often people who had been unionists right. during the Small war. farmers. And, and <laughs> a tremendous bitter division and, and came out of context of tremendous bitter division in places like upstate Georgia. Uh, upstate Alabama, where there was a lot of unionism. And this was about memories of who was on whose side during the war. And if you were a white Southerner voting for Republicans in 1868, uh, you better find protection uh, by 69. The argument, too, is that this is a period of Negro rule, that there are so many African Americans in these state legislatures. And the reality is they're not dominating anything uh, during this period. They are predominant in the lower house of the South Carolina legislature, but they're, but they're not the governors. Uh, they're, they're just not in charge anywhere. But collectively with the so-called carpetbaggers and the scalawags and black Republicans in the South, they are working together to actually improve the South. Because what we do see is that you have the uh, introduction of a public school system that's state-funded. The South didn't have that before you had this uh, uh, alliance between these three groups of people. They are reforming the tax laws and so forth. They're doing a lot of things that are bringing the South into uh, a more modern era. So they're not doing the kind of damage that historians for a long time, and, we are responsible collectively as historians for this image because it is, it was, I believe, at Columbia with William Dunning. Yes, it was. Uh, that, you know, that we have this image of, of uh, Negro rule you know, or, or these black Republicans uh, taking over. And the reality is something quite different. That doesn't mean that there was not corruption in some of these governments. There was corruption throughout the country during this period, but it certainly wasn't the fault of any one group of people. Right. And it is, it, it takes a lot of New York chutzpah to be blaming people for, or citing corruption in the Tweed era. But New, that's sort of what New York, New York Democrats We're number did. one in New York. We're number one. Um, just, there are some fascinating actors on this, in this period who we've forgotten, and Senator Hiram Revels is one of them and, and sits in, and is supposed to horrify the white South, but he sits, he takes Jefferson Davis's seat as United States Senator from Mississippi. Just talk about him for a minute because he doesn't get enough attention, I think. He, he is the first black senator elected and it's possible for him to be elected to the U.S. Senate. 
because you have a time when a lot of these Southerners have lost the right to vote for a period of time. Uh, and it is a real irony that he's taking the seat of the former president of the Confederacy. But I don't believe he actually serves. I think there is a lot of, of um, resistance to him. I don't know. He may have served for just a no, very short period of time. It's, yes. the, it's what they call the unexpired term. Right. Mm -hmm. It's right. only a few months, right. but he does serve for a few months. It's pinchback. They never let actually have Right, yeah. right, right. Although they voted However, I will, I, I never disagree with Edna, but I will on one point maybe do that. The, the number of whites who lost the right to vote is grossly exaggerated. That's true. It was That's not, true. It, the, the, in, by the time Hiram Rebels is elected, there were no disfranchisement in Mississippi of black, <laughs> of white voters. There was a little bit right at the beginning of radical reconstruction, but that fades away. They so were who just taking a walk and refusing yeah. to vote. Who, let's and just get this point straight. Who appoints rebels to the unexpired this, the, the legislature. The legislature. The, the, the yeah. Senators were elected by the legislature, right. not by popular vote. Even for an unexpired term. Because in yeah, many the states, the governor appoints unexpired Yeah, but, terms. you know, obviously Jefferson Davis had not been in Congress not since 1860, right, right. right? But that term continues. So uh, there's there's a there's an open seat for a right. few months, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and so Revels, as you said, the first African-American senator is in there. Reconstruction <laughs> politics is really fun. <laughs> but it's a little it, labyrinthine. It's lively. Yeah. Before we um, messy. Before we get to the amendments, which I think we should. By cover. the way, let me just point out. Uh, we could. This is a question. How many African Americans are in the U.S. Senate right now? Two. Thank you. That's right. Cory Booker, and uh, what is his name? Scott from. Um, but you know, there were two black senators during Reconstruction: Revels, and then later Blanche K. Bruce. In all of American history, I think there's been nine African American senators, and most of those are within the last four or five years. The two we have now: Obama. Uh, Boris, you know, there were several. This underscores the how what a yeah. radical moment in American history. You know, we know that Obama is the only black president, one out of 44. But the percentage of blacks in the Senate is much worse than one out of 44. There have been thousands right. of people or maybe 2000 who have sat in the Senate at one time or another. And nine of those have been African-American. So you know, the, the, the fact that African-Americans, whether it's, it's not Negro rule, as you said, but that people were elected to Congress, to the Senate, to le state legislatures, to local mm -hmm. offices like school boards and things like that, was a remarkable moment in American democracy, basically. The, Were there the, six oh, in the House? Six or seven in the House? Oh, more than that. Sixteen in the House 16 of Representatives. The um, this was actual democracy for the first mm -hmm. time in Southern history. Well, this is a good segue because I have a question for, for David that comes out of Rebels. But this one person who thought that Rebels was a crucial figure was Frederick Douglass. I, when, mm. when, when a uh, chromolithographer of the day issued a portrait of Hiram Rebels, Douglass said, hang this picture on your walls. He, was, he became an advocate, a blurber, for the idea that <laughs> African-American families should have Rebels pictures in their home. Not, he never said that about Lincoln pictures, although we can talk about the statue later. Where was Frederick Douglass in this period? What was he doing and, uh, and what was he saying about Reconstruction? A lot of the time he was wishing it was in the Senate. <laughs> but, um, and he understood symbols. Uh, Douglass at one point was urged by some people, uh, it was a bad idea, but to, to move south. 
in that moment, that three to five year period when it was possible for blacks to get elected, uh, late 60s, move south, uh, go to Mississippi, get elected to the Congress. Uh, it, he didn't do it for a whole variety of reasons. Douglas became after the war essentially a radical Republican. He agreed uh, with virtually every aspect of the radical Republican plan and regime. Um, he was only modestly in favor of the 14th Amendment at the first because it, you know, it had its compromises, same with the 15th Amendment, and yet he celebrated both of them once they were passed. Douglas at this time, though, from the end of the war uh, into the 70s, is a kind of a man without portfolio. He didn't have a newspaper anymore until he actually created another newspaper in Washington in 1870. He had no paid job. His only employment, as it had been for so long, was as a paid orator, and he traveled constantly. I mean, constantly, months at a time, lecturing and speaking uh, about the great issues of the time. Uh, but Douglas had a certain kind of personal crisis for a while after the war, and there's the famous line, a wonderful line in his last autobiography when he talks about 1865-66 as the time when Othello's occupation was gone. Famous line from Shakespeare's Othello. It's Douglas saying, what do I do now? Uh, my cause has been won. And of course, very quickly he realizes, <laughs> no, it hasn't. It's about to be defeated and betrayed. But what he does become is an extraordinarily loyal Republican, in season and out, for the rest of his life. Uh, and there are lots of reasons for that. Um, and he was a huge supporter of Grant's, not always in favor of everything Grant did, uh, but uh, Grant was where the power was, and Grant did appoint him to uh, a commission. His first federal appointment was to the Santo Domingo Commission when the Grant administration was trying to, in effect, annex uh, what is today the Dominican Republic. Uh, Douglas was part of that commission that went to the DR or Santo Domingo and tried to arrange the U.S. annexation. And I should say also, Douglas was part of, it's a, it's a bitter debate among the old abolitionists, Charles Sumner and some on one side, and Douglas and a host of others on another. Douglas became one of those former abolitionists in the 1860s and early 70s who came to believe, not without reason, that the United States had just experienced the abolition revolution. Uh, that emancipation had transformed the United States into a wholly new republic and that they ought to export it. And a number of former abolitionists who had been the bitterest critics of the United States now were advocating that the United States take its new regime, its new ideas, its new racial equality to the Caribbean, to South America. He became, not unlike others, a kind of an American imperialist. Uh, and eventually he'll be in the U.S. minister to Haiti, although that ran amok on him. But it's fascinating just how much many abolitionists came to see, and it's not hard to understand. They believed they had experienced, you know, a genuine transformation of the meaning of the United States, and that they ought to now be taking this to the rest of the, they ought to be emancipating the rest of the world. Now we know. We have a difficult history. It was a very Lincolnian idea. Very Lincoln. Yeah, if Lincoln, if Lincoln lives out his term, it's got to be fascinating. It's where our hope have, and hope for all the world. It would be fascinating yeah. where he'd have been. 
on these issues of annexation. Probably very much the same. Probably way. would have. He's becoming and disillusioned as well. Though, Sorry? Isn't he? He's becoming very disillusioned as well. I mean, Douglas. in 70, in oh, 76, the 70s, he's, sure. Uh, without, in fact, his second greatest speech. Well, <laughs> that's always a way of saying, so what's his first? But uh, I think his second greatest speech is a dedication speech at the, the Lincoln Monument in Washington in 1876, which is all about reconstruct. That's the speech. Uh, th that's the famous statue of the standing Lincoln and the kneeling slave, and Douglas is the order of the day. It's the famous speech in which he says Lincoln was a white man's president. That's primarily, first, primarily, primarily the white man's president. You, my fellow citizens, white citizens are his children. I and my people are his stepchildren. He plays out the stepchildren metaphor, but it's also a speech that greatly honors Lincoln's leadership in his time. But that speech is all about the betrayal of reconstruction. It, it, it's and it's Grant, his cabinet, the Supreme Court and congressmen sitting in front of him. No black man had ever had that audience. It's Douglas saying to them, Reconstruction is being lost. You may not even have time to save it, but you might still act. So, yeah, by then, uh, he sees the whole thing. What, going, what year is that? 76. 76. It's right before the actual betrayal. Right. It's a few months it's, before. It's the anniversary. The deal. Right. It's the anniversary of Lincoln's assassination. No, it's the anniversary uh, of the assassination. Assassination. April April 14th, I exactly. think, or 15th. Exactly. It's an amazing speech. Pull it up online. It is an amazing, extraordinary After you read his Fourth of July speech. <laughs> Number one. You know, one little point to go back to the lithograph of rebels. I think what Douglas said, what, correct me if I'm wrong, was something to the effect that we African-American people are so used to seeing ourselves portrayed yes. as monkeys. Yes, he did. You know, in a totally caricatured, stereotyped way that here is a dignified image. Yeah. Right of a dignified person, a U.S. senator. That's why you put it up on your wall, so your children can see this, children, yeah. so your family can see it, because you don't have those images in wide circulation. In fact, one of the things that does happen in Reconstruction is the production of all these images of black officials, right. black congressmen, black freed people working on land. Voting. Uh, yeah, voting, exactly. A whole, And these circulate widely in the black community as a alternative visual picture. Right. But now, think too, now you're in my wheelhouse for a second. So at the same time, Curry and Ives issues their dark town images. Right. For years, the most hideous caricatures of African-Americans that they had not been producing in that number or with that vulgarity, even in the pre-war period, right. even for the Lincoln election. So you do have a counter- uh, assault of images from the North, as usual, because the North is where the print production is, that is circulated to the South. Yep. So people can amuse themselves with images of African-Americans as, as well subhuman. As these nostalgic images of slavery. Oh, yeah. The happy Harper's slaves. Harper's did that all right. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah, no, that's a sign. You're right, right, of course. That's a sign of the sort of the, a cultural sign of the general retreat from Reconstruction, which takes place beginning in the 70s and then goes all the way up to the right. end of the century and, and everything. And not only was, is racism never out of season, but that stuff is happening you know, after the panic, the depression of 1873, 70, yeah. where the, the country's got all kinds of other problems to deal with and they need people to blame now. Yeah, so. Just walk us through, Edna, you start on the 14th and 15th Amendments because the 13th passes in December and... Uh, we're still talking about those amendments today, and what they mean about birthrights. Mm -hmm. Well, if I may, uh, let's start with the Civil Rights Act of 1866, okay, good. because that's sort of the precursor 
but that act should have, or at least attempted to, uh, establish citizenship for African Americans. But there's a real concern that it's not going to hold up, that an amendment is necessary. And so Congress does pass the 14th Amendment as a consequence of, of the, I don't want to say radical, but there are Republicans in Congress, and different Republican Party, by the way, today. So let's establish that. But um, there are Republicans in Congress who really believe that there has to be this amendment. And what it does is it grants citizenship to all people born in the United States, something we need to think about today as well. So the 14th Amendment is still extremely important today. And it also uh, attempts to ensure uh, due process and protection uh, under the laws. Uh, I'm always struck by the fact that African-Americans have to have their citizenship ensured by an amendment when all of the people we're talking about this period were born in America. These are not people who were born on the African continent. These are people who were born here, whose ancestors were buried here, who helped to build this country. And this had to occur. Uh, the 15th Amendment, of course, a couple of years later, uh, granted the right to vote uh, to African-Americans, although the 14th had, if I'm not mistaken, talked about uh, the, the right to vote, but it was more no, of a... Not, it, what it, what it, it said didn't ensure, was, but... What it said was, which is why Sumner and Douglas didn't like it, is that states could deny people right. the right to vote. Right. Men, the women didn't move and didn't like it either because right. it introduced the word male into mm -hmm. the Constitution for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, but they would lose. That you, states could take away the right to vote from groups of men, but they would lose some of their representation right. in Congress. So it didn't mm -hmm. actually give anyone the right to vote. It said, if you don't give people the right to vote, you're going to lose some uh, political power. Right, right. The 15th tries to give black men the right to vote, but it's worded in such a way that it is not that hard to get around. And even today, as you well know, there are mm -hmm. states passing laws to Absolutely. deny people the right to vote, which are not, well, this is a court thing, which try to work around the 15th Amendment. And mm -hmm. many courts have said, OK, you can do that under the 15th Amendment. And it's the classic. You, Harold, you brought up how we are always talking about these things. And John Roberts, let's be honest, made us talk about it in, in um, the Shelby case in 2012 by erasing Section 5 of the Voting Rights, Amendment, or Voting Rights Act. Um, hmm. uh, I did just one quick comment about that 14th Amendment. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, and, and I sometimes overdo this, <laughs> but uh, that's the country you live in. Section one of the 14th Amendment. Without it, uh, I don't know how we would survive. Go read it. It's, it's two sentences. It was written by John Bingham of Ohio. And uh, that's the all persons born in. That's the citizenship, birthright citizenship, equal protection clause of the Constitution. It's the most debated clause in our Constitution, has been forever. It has a thousand meanings. But without it, I'm not sure how this society would even stay together. And without emancipation, no Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And without 14th Amendment, no 15th. Uh, so, you know, those, those, those amendments we will debate forever, uh, but without them... It's very much a different constitution after that. Absolutely. The word equal, equal is not in the original constitution. Mm -hmm. There is nothing in the original constitution which says that 
people, citizens have to be treated equally before the law. The 14th Amendment makes that part of the Constitution. And of course, it now it applies to everybody, not just African Americans. The gay marriage decision was a 14th, was a 14th Amendment, Amendment decision. decision. Nobody in 1866 was told, thinking about gay marriage, but right. they, were, they were setting up a principle, not just dealing with a specific right. thing, a principle of what the country should look like. It should be a country of equal citizens. Of course, what that means is open to debate, but it was a very different idea than the founding fathers had put into the Constitution to begin with. I want to ask one follow-up question, but before I do, the microphones have been placed in the two aisles, and I want to invite anyone who has questions, because we'll have a nice long question and answer period, to please line up. So my follow-up, before we get to the questions, is, so the 13th Amendment passes in December 65. How on earth did they pass the 14th and 15th Amendments? What were the legislature, legislative bodies like? I mean, Mississippi or Alabama in, uh, um, ratified the 13th Amendment three years ago. I mean, right. they didn't deal with it until then. So how, well, how did well, they... First of all, despite, you know, Andrew Johnson was responsible for the final ratification of the 13th Amendment. Andrew Johnson said, you got, your states cannot come back in unless they ratify the 13th Amendment. Mississippi decided they didn't care about... They, they, they didn't want to ratify it anyway, and they didn't. But um, you only need three quarters of the states. 14th Amendment, you know, the South is not represented in Congress in 1866 when the 14th mm -hmm. Amendment passes through the Congress by a two-thirds vote. The Reconstruction Act of 1867 requires the states to ratify the 14th Amendment, the Southern states, if they want to get back in. So, you know, and then the 15th Amendment is, is ratified by Congress and states where black people are voting. You know, there are new, the, the, the states that ratified the 15th Amendment um, are states where you have radical Reconstruction governments uh, voting on it in the South. So they're all passed in very unusual and unique moments in our history. The 14th Amendment could not be ratified today. That's no, a right. commentary on how far we especially have Especially with the time travel. constraint, as we yeah. now, especially with the time constraints yeah. the, that we now impose. In fact, the crass way of putting it is, if you really want to change the Constitution, have a civil war, get rid of 11 states, exactly. and get a lot Then you can get a lot done, right. <laughs> not a good idea, but... It certainly helped Lincoln win in 1864. Mm -hmm. All right, we have a lot of people with questions. You start, identify yourself. and Yeah, Aaron Hall, I teach at Greenwich High School. Um, I've heard recently the 14th Amendment described um, as the peace treaty of the war since Appomattox was essentially a secession of military, um, <laughs> military construct. And I'm glad you brought up um, Bingham. Uh, Maglioka has a great book on that. Yeah. Clause 1 takes Bingham's construction and bastardizes it, divides the, the state and the federal government. Um, I'm always wondering how to frame Clause 2 and the proportionality. And I wonder about black codes. I wonder about all of the, um, the, the challenges with segregation. How much would have been uh, forestalled had Congress had the um, power or desire to... Uh, deal with the proportionality question and the power given to it in, in Section okay. 2? You know, the 14th Amendment it was a series of compromises. It was, ha Bingham started it, but it was hammered out in the Joint Committee of Reconstruction by a series of eight to seven votes, you know, uh, and it was meant, it, it, 
it was meant to satisfy the whole Republican Party. It was not just the radicals. So there are conservative elements in it. There are radical elements in it. It does not give black men the right to vote directly, which the radicals wanted, but they couldn't get through at that point. Um, the second clause about representation is a giant mess and almost impossible to understand. It has never been enforced. Even in the days when black men were denied the right to vote all over the South, the South never lost representation because of that. They should have, but Congress never enforced it. So, you know, it, it, the 14th Amendment is difficult to analyze. Um, Segregation was not on the minds of Congress at that time. It was not a major issue at that time. We look back and we, from our era, and, you know, Brown and everything, it's, you know, when, when, when they were debating, when they were arguing Brown before the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court said, you guys go back and find out what the original purpose of the 14th Amendment was regarding segregation. So they all hired historians right away to do this. And yeah, they came back and reported, we don't know. They didn't actually talk about segregation. No. So the decision said... For two generations more. Yeah, the, the, right. The decision in the end in Brown said, well, whatever they thought about segregation back then, it means something different today. So right. we don't care what they thought in 1866. So uh, it really had nothing to do with racial segregation, the 14th Amendment. That was not a major political issue at that moment. Okay, let's go on to this side. Here. Right. In my graduate school days, we saw Kenneth Stamp as the historian of Reconstruction. Now, 50 years later... There are new ideas. Tahisi Coates' comments resonated enormously, especially in the Afro-American community and the Black Lives Matter. Uh, uh, how does the race of historians impact views of these historical events? In other words, will the next generation of black historians view Reconstruction totally differently? Okay. I'm sure that the next generation of historians of every race and background will view Reconstruction differently. That is what historians do. They try to view things differently than their predecessors. Edna, would you like to tackle that? Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know that my perspective on any aspect of history is any different from my colleagues, except that I probably pay a lot of attention, more attention to what's happening to African-Americans than to any other group of people. But we have people here on the stage who have spoken very eloquently about what's happening during Reconstruction and in other eras of history as well, and have gotten it right. Yeah, I don't think the race of the historian is the issue right. at all. Stamp was white. Just before his book, John mm -hmm. Hope Franklin, who was mm -hmm. black, had published a book on Reconstruction. Um, Black and white scholars have been writing about this since and don't all agree with each other. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think there's any scholar today of any race who would go back and resurrect the Dunning School and everything. Right. You know, Let's hope not. that's sort of gone. You never know what's coming out of UT or something. Yeah, it may like happen. Right. <laughs> well, a very quick anecdote. One of my dear friends and mentors, these folks knew, was Nathan Huggins, great African-American historian. Nathan used to love to tell the story of being a 19 or 20 year old undergraduate at Stanford when he sat in the lectures of some young white professor named Kenneth Stamp and was learning for the first time in his life about slavery. And then some book called Peculiar Institution came out. And uh, Nathan used to love to tell that story whenever possible to explode what's at the heart of your question. Um, also, Ta-Nehisi Coates, when I got to know, I've gotten to know pretty well, would be the first to tell you that his own sense of American history 
came from reading a lot of historians on his own. He's basically a self-taught historian of his own kind now. Not totally. We taught him. No, I know. Yeah, Yes, indeed. Uh, the Mecca, the Mecca, the Mecca. Yeah, half the book is about the Mecca. He was a history student. I know, but the, okay. then, he, then he left you. What grade, yes, what grade did. did you give him? <laughs> or is that I was only his advisor, oh, not right. his professor. All right. I think we better move on to yeah, the next question. Because <laughs> I, I had Eric Holder in class. Oh, my. I gave him a B. <laughs> But back then, a B was a respectable grade. It isn't anymore. <laughs> Only from you, because right. of your reputation. Hi, I'm Jim Pasinich. I'm a docent here. My question, Professor Foner, you talked about the effect of slavery economically and, and um, um, sociologically. The slaves were the heart and soul of the economy before the Civil War. They're free now after the Civil War. How does the Southern economy reboot itself without that, that slave labor? <laughs> that is a big problem. And of course, the Southern economy goes downhill for everybody, black and white, with the exception of those at the very, the 1%, uh, for the whole rest of the 19th century. I mean, the economic problems of the South were very dire. Um, the end of slavery wiped out an enormous amount of wealth. The slaves themselves represented wealth, but the banks of the South were all destroyed. Uh, the new credit system, the new banking system put into place by the North during the Civil War was completely biased against the South. Um, there was a world oversupply of cotton because the, um, you know, the British had started cotton growing in Egypt and many other places during the war to get around the loss of cotton from the South. When the South comes back, there's a giant glut of cotton and the price keeps falling. In other words, I don't care who was in charge in the South, any political party was going to face a dire economic situation uh, for, for the next third of the 19th century. And, you know, what they needed was some kind of Marshall Plan or something, but that was not happening in the 19th century. So, you know, the, the challenges facing Reconstruction and then the challenges facing the post-Reconstruction governments were immense and they were not solved. You know, by the 1930s, President Roosevelt is saying the South is the number one economic problem of the United States. And it was a vast landscape of poverty for almost everybody, black or white. Blacks were much more disproportionately at the bottom, but there were more white sharecroppers than black during this whole period. Uh, poor whites suffered enormously too. So it's, it's not a very happy story. Whether there could have been a better policy to, uh, you know, economic policy to get the South out of this, nobody knows. But, um, you know, th that is sort of an underlying problem which confronted Reconstruction and every government that came after it. We, we, but we can't, we can't consider just the economic issues because it's the economic problem combined with the lack of social justice, mm -hmm. combined with the violence there. And so those things are what really do in African-Americans, especially the newly emancipated. Mm -hmm. And so even if there had been a way to give economic independence, there still would have been a great deal of violence there because Southerners would have attempted to keep people of color in that subservient position, mm -hmm. one way or the other. And we haven't talked enough about violence. I hope we get a question about it. Yeah, let's, <laughs> Thank you. let's go to this. 
I'm Susan Fales-Hill. I'm a writer. Thank you for this beautiful presentation. Uh, it was mentioned that Frederick Douglass wanted to help export American values of emancipation to the Caribbean, given that certainly in the British colonies, slavery had been abolished as early as 1834 and not through violence, but through indemnification, partially funded by banks like the Rothschilds. What exactly were they trying to export and to what areas? Since ah. some of these places were frankly ahead of us. Uh, yeah, well, what they were trying to export was, they thought, uh, racial equality, uh, republicanism, representative government, uh, anti-monarchialism. Uh, the British Empire, you could say, was a kind of a, a model, although the economic situation of a Jamaica w was not any prettier by then than was the U.S. South. Um, but it was really a kind of political liberalism 19th century style. And by that, I mean it in the old sense of the word liberalism. The idea that if you create the proper, you know, legitimate political institutions and you have equality before law and, 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 and a widespread suffrage, out of that will evolve, you know, human equality, boats will rise, uh, social peace and so forth. They really believed this. And they saw themselves now as the prophets of, of this new possibility. They didn't all see it that way. There's a, there's a bitter debate among the old abolitionists about just how and where to do this. But the Caribbean uh, first was, was the principal uh, object of this. But they weren't, they weren't afraid to think about it a lot of other places. I mean, there aren't a lot of republics at that point in, in, in history in the world. And they saw them, America was now the new shining new model on the hill, but only because of emancipation, not because of the founding in the 18th century. You know, th this is the notion, this is why so many of us now call this the second American revolution or the second founding, because they really believed that. They had, they had led and experienced a second founding of the United States. And they had, in a way. Now, imperialism always has its problems, wherever you try to do it, even if, even if it's extraordinarily righteous in some way. And they found that out in a hurry. I really want to get all of these folks. Yeah. So let's let's not have, let's stop with the group that's lining up because I don't know if we're going to get to everyone, but you're next. Hi, my name is Maria Madison. I'm with the documentary group. We do a series of films on landmark Supreme Court cases. And I'm wondering if you can go back to the role of the Supreme Court at the end of Reconstruction and the, the destruction of the promise of Reconstruction as a result of its actions. The role of the court in yeah, the Yeah, I mean, that's a long, long story. The Supreme Court, court, little by little, you know, it wasn't just one moment. Mm -hmm. Over the whole course from the 1870s, 80s, 90s, you can run through these cases, Slaughterhouse, Crookshank, um, you know, the civil, one of the worst ever, the civil rights cases of 1883, which invalidated the civil rights law of 1875, the last reconstruction measure. And then on to Plessy v. Ferguson, Williams v. Mississippi, 1900, which allows the disenfranchisement of black voters in Mississippi. Little by little, the Supreme Court whittled away at the rights that were being supposedly protected of African-Americans. Now, there is a phrase out there, you know, the Supreme Court follows the election returns. The Supreme Court was reflecting a general retreat in Northern society from these very high ideals of equality and democracy. And... Um, but it definitely played a um, disreputable role in this. Um, the thing that is striking to me is a lot of those cases are still good law in the sense they have never been overturned. 
And, you know, the Supreme Court builds on precedent. That's our legal system. Plessy v. Ferguson was rejected by the court but in Brown. But all those other cases have never been repudiated, even though I think they're based on a deeply racist underpinning. And um, I wrote an article in a law journal condemning the Supreme Court for its Reconstruction jurisprudence. But it hasn't, the current one, but they haven't responded. <laughs> <laughs> well, one other, just quick point on that. It, 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 what the court was also doing in this period is showing us that they, the court justices, and a lot of American society were not at all comfortable with this extraordinary extension of federal power. Because what most of these decisions mm -hmm. do is put power back at the states, mm -hmm. back at the state level, whether it's about civil rights or anything else. And that has a tremendous legacy if you just have one eye open about the society we live in right now. We live in a states' rights country now, uh, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, and uh, it stems from this period. They, they were never comfortable with this extension of federal power. Uh, and that's the legacy we're still fighting. Yes. My name is Pam. I am a PhD candidate in American history at NYU. I had a question about the role that capital and labor played in Reconstruction. So one of the things that, since we've been talking about Ta-Nehisi Coates so much, is that he tweeted that he hadn't read um, Du Bois's Reconstruction. So maybe we can use Du Bois to fill that in. Um, he hasn't read it even now? He tweeted that recently. That was wow. like a week ago or something. Ta-Nehisi, get busy. <laughs> so maybe we can, you know, fill it's in the It's been a little busy. He's, um, he's, he's, well, he's too busy let's, tweeting. Let's get a question. Okay, question. so the question is, uh, so one of the ways that, you know, you've talked about and someone asked here, slavery was taken away. What did slavery do? It, it provided a great deal of labor. And in the post-Civil War period, you have then the problem presenting again. What is the relationship between capital and labor in the South? As far as I know and as far as I've read, one of the ways in which it evolves, whether it be through sharecropping tendency, is that greater and greater capital risk is essentially pushed towards the employee. So uh, sharecroppers had to, for example, mm -hmm. pay for a lot of things, whether it be tools, et cetera. Uh, yes. So the question is that what exactly is the role between people who were slaves who are now laborers? and capital as it was presented in the South. Good. Slavery plus risk and responsibility for, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad, right? <laughs> it's, it's absolutely awful. Yeah. Uh, what happens is people have, it's, it's interesting that when we talk about, you know, the Jacksonian era and the change in uh, how labor is affected as industrialization takes hold before the Civil War, we see that people are losing the, uh, the ability to control their, their labor. Uh, and so you see the same thing happening during this period. But of course, enslaved people never had any control anyway. And so this is just an extension of that. Uh, things could have been different, uh, perhaps, but you have to start with the idea that people are worthy of uh, compensation for their labor. And if you have a group of people who are believing that folk are still enslaved in, in, in a sense, then they're not going to want to pay. The argument is they didn't have money to pay, uh, that they had to behave in the way they did toward labor because African-Americans were not willing 
to work without coercion. We know that that is not true. Certainly there is a difference between how African-Americans respond to their freedom and how uh, Southerners, white Southerners respond to this new freedom uh, that they're experiencing. But at bottom, people understood that they needed to take care of their families, but they had no means to control uh, any of the terms and conditions of their labor during this period. Good answer, yes. Hi, Michael Solander, uh, lawyer and law professor. Uh, I wanna see if we can vindicate Hillary Clinton here a little bit. Um, and maybe Abraham Lincoln too, with the same question. Uh, Reconstruction was largely not successful, and in many respects not successful at all. Well-intentioned, but not successful. Could Lincoln, with his temperament, with his stature, have actually put, put it on a more successful glide path? Oh, you see, I avoided the what-if uh, question, the, the direct what-if question. I think we all said that we recognize Lincoln's extraordinary political skills. We acknowledge the diminished skill set that occupied the White House <laughs> afterwards. And, and I've heard today also a, a reminder that Lincoln believed in executive reconstruction and to the extent he would have imposed it and been opportunistic about extending reunion and rights, he probably would have been inventive and he had to have been more successful than what replaced him. Does anybody want to... Weigh in and you dare know, to criticize. Lincoln believed Lincoln. in executive reconstruction, but he also knew how to work with Congress, yeah. which Andrew Johnson did not. He played them. Like and a the Wade Davis bill is the only significant bill he vetoed relating to these issues during his presidency. He he disagreed with Congress now and then, but they normally worked out their differences. And I'm sure he didn't that even really sign a veto. He just let it. Expire. Right. He didn't even. Pocket. Right. It was a pocket. pocket veto. But but and Lincoln was deeply deeply involved, rooted in the Republican Party, unlike Johnson, of course. So, you know, the mass of the Republican Party wanted protection of the basic rights of the African-Americans once, you know, 1865, 66 comes along. Lincoln would have certainly gone along with that, I think. You probably would have had a reconstruction with the, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, probably the 14th Amendment. I don't think any, any reason to think Lincoln would not have supported something like the 14th Amendment. Then how far would you have gotten? Was it Johnson's failure or was it the white South's violence against Reconstruction? And, you know, I don't think Lincoln would have, Lincoln's presence would have stopped the Ku Klux Klan from rising or that kind of thing. And then you have to say, well, what would Lincoln have done then? Maybe this problem is just insoluble even for a man of Lincoln's, you know, sagacity. We don't know. Then, you know, the, the further you go down the road of counterfactual, the more totally speculative it is. I can imagine what Lincoln might have done in 1865, but when you get to 1868, you're so far beyond, yeah. you know, that, that, that so many other factors are at play that it's I impossible. usually stop speculating on March 4th, 1869, assuming okay. he's going home after that. Okay. But, but, but is Reconstruction a total failure? It isn't. There, there no, are things that occur... Point that are wonderful. Yes. It's just that it doesn't continue. And had it continued, had it been broader, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it. Probably. No, and by the way, and, and absolutely, it is not a total failure. This, right. Things come out of Reconstruction which survive long after the Reconstruction mm -hmm. period. The school systems you mm -hmm. mentioned, the independent black churches. Absolutely. It, Reconstruction gives a space for the black community in freedom to develop in the South. And one can imagine much harsher outcomes even than what actually happened after Reconstruction. And then at the nub of your question is, which of course is unanswerable, uh, 
is would Lincoln have used federal enforcement powers, clearly more than Johnson, mm -hmm. would he have used more than Grant? We don't know. Because at the end of the day, that's what this mm -hmm. would have taken. Yeah. We, we don't know. Exactly. Mm. Yes, you've been very patient. Well, um, before I ask my quick question, I'd just like to make a suggestion that if we start to run out of time, could we at least hear all the questions? Even We're if going to hear all the questions. Answer. We have okay. four more, so we'll be <laughs> so, fine. Okay. Uh, my name is Alice Labrie. Uh, I say this for a reason. I'm former U.S. Department of State Foreign Service. I was born in Louisiana, but raised in Berkeley, Oakland. Um, my quick comment prefacing my question, I will not be called African-American. My passport says American. I will not be called a hyphenated person. People fought really hard to make us citizens. But anyway, so as a preface to that question, the little children who were made to be apprentices, were they citizens at the time? And when did they start being called citizens? I mean, was that a kindness on the part of some former slaveholders to take these children and do something with them? Oh, heavens, no. No, 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 no. Well, there the, were some good slaveholders. This, this is an attempt. First of all, they're citizens because they're born in the United States. Were they considered citizens at that time? No, because the 14th Amendment had not been established right. yet. They're being uh, apprenticed immediately after the war. Uh, uh, some of these children had actually never left the plantations, but some had. And so what's happening is landowners and other people who can do so will go to the courts and will indicate that this parent or parents are indigent and they can't take care of their child, so let their child come live with me. I will train that child if it's a boy. I'll train him in how to farm or how to do some kind of, of trade. If it's a girl, then generally it's, it's housewifery. It's about the extent of it. So the court it. made the decision. Right. So, but the point is parents were not, had no ability to say no. And so someone could come into your home and take your child and take that child back to their plantation or to their shop or whatever, and that child would have to serve. And the courts condoned that. Were they paid? So, no, no, no. The parents sometimes were given a small amount of money, okay? But the parent had no say in this. Yes. Good morning. First of all, this has been t totally fascinating, and I want to thank you all. It's a terrific presentation. Um, I'm going to ask a difficult question, which I know there's a long answer to. Uh, what is your opinion about reparations? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, it, during Reconstruction, the word re reparations was not in use, but the demand for 40 acres and a mule was couched in a way that could be analogous to reparations. That is to say, there were African Americans said, look, we have worked this land, we have created the wealth in this society, we deserve payment of some kind for that. That's something along the lines of what reparations is. It has been, uh, in the 1890s, uh, there was a black woman who um, Mary Berry wrote about. Kelly House. Yes, who had a campaign for federal pensions for former slaves. I don't know if you want to call them reparations or not, but, you know, some kind of payment to, to reflect the unpaid labor that they had done. Uh, Marcus Garvey. In other words, reparations has popped up in, throughout our history. It's not just something that was invented uh, the other day. Um, 
what you know I, as I, I am I don't have a dog in that fight so to speak but I believe what we need is social policy that addresses the lingering consequences of not only slavery but Jim Crow segregation inequality racism if you call that reparations I don't care what you call it but we need policies of the society to try to address these inequalities. What label you put on that is up to you. And, and usually the argument is that reparations should not be paid because there's no one alive today who was a slaveholder. But the issue is not even about what happened during slavery, as, as you indicate. The issue is about what happened after slavery as well. There, were, there was an oppression of people of color sanctioned by our federal government. And there is still fallout to that. I mean, there, there's still the issues of voter suppression today. Absolutely. All of these things we're still experiencing. And so it doesn't have to be a monetary kind of thing, but there can be some other way to address these issues. And as a nation, we have not addressed them yet. We want to deny that any of these things still occur, that we are in a post-racial society, when in reality, we certainly are not. One of the best arguments I've, I don't know how much I've heard it, but thought of, uh, about reparations, ironically, and you both brought it up, comes out of a, a court decision like Shelby v. Holder. That's the court case, five to four. John Roberts wrote the opinion, erasing the Voting Rights Act or the clause in the Voting Rights Act, after which over 30 Republican-controlled legislatures in this country passed as fast as they could voter ID laws. Now, that's just about voting. And that doesn't, you know, that's not about writing checks. That's not, not, it seems like it's not about the economy. But as long as that happens in this country, we have to forever talk about what we've redressed or not redressed. And in some ways, at the heart of the radical Republican plan of Reconstruction was a reparations regime of a kind. They didn't call it that because they didn't have the word then. They were trying to redress two and a half centuries of slavery, for, you know, within the confines of what they understood how to do. Um, and yes, it failed in some ways and it succeeded in other ways. But, you know, in a sense, we will always have this debate, especially when uh, we can't even keep uh, the new reconstruction laws we passed uh, in the 1960s. I would just add that the, to me, the value, the particular value of the renewed reparations movement is that it makes, keeps the issue in our consciousness and in the political vocabulary and invites, quote, a compromise that would go back to the inalienable, inalienable rights that are questioned by modern court decisions and by legislatures who follow up on them. So I think having it in the atmosphere is not a bad thing, as unlikely as it is to have funding for economic reparations or anything. Yes, we have one from this side and one from this side. Uh, hi, thank you. My name is Mike Biowitz. I'm a lawyer here in Manhattan. Um, <clears throat> my question is um, goes to a comment you made a, a few moments ago about Lincoln would have left on March 4th, uh, 1869. Reconstruction covered three presidential terms. We've, the program today is really focused on the first, and I'm not denying the importance of it, but I'd ask that you focus on or, or answer, give some evaluation of the performance of the Grant 
mm-hmm. of Ulysses Grant and the Grant administration. Crucial. In some ways, he was the most pro-civil rights president we had until the 1960s. Okay, Grant's enforcement of an abandonment well, of Reconstruction. Grant, uh, once Grant comes in, there then the Republican Party is in control of both the Congress and the White House for the first time now. And Grant tries to enforce the laws for a while. He, he endorses the amendments and the um, legislation. When the Klan arises, or, you know, he does send even in 1871 troops and uh, marshals into South Carolina, Alabama, to round up Klansmen and uh, put them on trial. And he actually crushes the Klan successfully for a while. But like the Supreme Court, the president is sort of, you know, at the mercy of public sentiment. And particularly, as David said, after the economic collapse of 1873 and the economic depression that starts there, uh, the sort of whole focus of politics shifts away from the Southern issue, so to speak. And Grant is, you know, 1875, uh, John Lynch, John R. Lynch, a black congressman from Mississippi, when there's tremendous violence in the elections going on in Mississippi, Lynch goes to Grant and says, look, you've got to send troops to Mississippi, otherwise we're going to lose Mississippi. And Grant says, I could do that. I could save Mississippi. But if I do that, I'm going to lose Ohio. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is northern public opinion is no longer willing to intervene in the South to protect the rights of black people. And therefore, the president is hamstrung. So by the end of, so the retreat from Reconstruction is going on under Grant, um, but who does crack down against the Klan? Though he, we have yeah, to give him some credit it's for not, that. Yeah, but it's not, you know, it's not Grant's own personal fault, so to speak. It is something that is happening mm-hmm. in the society. That's a good point. Altogether. Yeah. Just a quick note on that. We, you're right. We didn't concentrate on the Grant years and the retreat from Reconstruction, and it needs to be said, and maybe you know this. But there's never been another time in American history with as much um, political violence, just social and political violence, as occurred on the ground in the South, primarily in the South, uh, from eight, roughly 1868, in spurts, up and down, usually in election years, right on through the end of Reconstruction. The numbers are in the thousands. Today, if we had one person murdered at a voting poll, I mean, you know, we'd all be watching CNN. Uh, it would, it would, it might shut down the election. Well, at least in that poll, uh, there were hundreds of people murdered trying to vote in '68, in '70, in '72, and so forth. And also, one quick note: you know, it wasn't just Grant. Congress set up this Ku Klux Klan hearings process in 1871, which were extraordinary. There had never been congressional hearings like this in American history. They conducted them in seven states, and they produced 14 volumes of testimony about Klan violence, uh, roughly in the late 1860s. And in a sense, that, that those documents, which are huge, and they're all online now, were a discussion of some kind of reparation, because the purpose of it was to try to decide, well, who, who to prosecute, what, who to adjudicate, and could people actually you know, be paid anything for their sufferings? So at least there was this attempt to do this in a culture and a political time when people really weren't sure how to. But the violence of Reconstruction, you cannot overestimate. We have time for one more quick, quick question. My name is Roy Lechleiter. I teach political science at Rutgers. Um, Could you talk, since you're talking about the military here too, could you talk about the role, if any, of former Confederates in the American military after the Civil War? Wow, that's a long, that's a long, uh, 
That's a good one. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, Lee becomes the president of a college and speaks about reconciliation without equality. Longstreet becomes a Republican. Yeah, I mean, the army Nathan is uh, Forrest becomes diminished head of the considerably Klux at this point, right? Yeah. You're not really recruiting that many people. And that's right. a good question. I don't, are you asking whether former Confederates went into the United States Army? Not at this point, I wouldn't think, although certainly by the time of the Spanish-American War. Oh, yeah, they're back. Well, they start returning to West Point. Yeah. After Reconstruction. I mean, think about it. Southerners coming back to West Point. As for the sons of Confederate veterans, uh, yeah, well, what, they dominate the, the army. It's a fascinating history about when they do finally start coming back. And eventually, of course, they start naming halls for Robert E. Lee. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Including in Brooklyn, Think by the way. And now they're having a vigorous debate at West Point whether to rename the Lee Barracks. Just like at the Yale. Just like everywhere Just else. Just like at Yale. <laughs> and the only way... I vote for renaming Lee Barracks. I'm not sure about Yale yet. The only way... <laughs> David, the only way to get to uh, Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn is on Robert E. Lee Road. We have Robert E. Lee Road? Yeah, I there? didn't know that. Brooklyn. I didn't know that. Well, where's the city council here? Where yeah. Where <laughs> Let's there rename was, it. There must be one member here. From the Let's rename it Hiram Revels Road. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I am going to end with, uh, uh, at great risk to my personal safety, I'm going to end with a quote from the person uh, I quoted at the beginning. Uh, when Hillary Clinton got to speak for herself on this subject, she made a very good statement. And this is what I think we can all end by agreeing on. Too many injustices remain today. Attempts to suppress voting rights go back to racist efforts against Reconstruction. And in fighting for voting rights and equality today, we are continuing a long struggle that still has to be fought and won in our own generation. The fight continues, and we thank Edna Medford, Eric Foner, and David Blight for advancing the discussion. So, Thank you all for coming. You know, we can't put great programs together like this without a great audience like you. So you all deserve a great applause as well. Come back. The books are, the author's books are in our museum store and we are thrilled to have you always. Thank you so much.